0: Affordable housing is a basic human right, and to build a better Kentucky where all our people can thrive, safe and reliable housing is absolutely essential.
1: I wanted to be better and meet those goals and it wouldn't have been possible without Kentucky housing.
2: Knowing that I had a roof over my head, food to eat, knowing that I didn't have to want for anything, um, that's a a big plus.
3: Being a single parent and not having to worry about, um, you know, housing. Uh, Paying bills while, you
1: know, being in school. I am here to tell you that there is a lot of beauty in this part of the county.
4: Bringing
5: it home with KHC. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Bringing it Home with KHC. I am your host, Steve Morrow. Last year, we launched this podcast as another way to tell the KHC story. In 2022, we held our first in-person conference since COVID began, We found that many of our partners and counterparts yearned to connect, to celebrate their accomplishments, to collaboratively tackle challenges, and to begin rebuilding the state. We use that as a model for our podcast. We began in January by establishing the state of affordable housing in Kentucky and discussing challenges for multifamily developers and loan officers. We explored the need for fair housing and spoke with KHC staff and partners about how Kentuckians can achieve their dream of homeownership. In July, we offered a multi-part look at how the Eastern Kentucky floods impacted the region and how residents and KHC partners are rebuilding. And we ended the year with a look at weatherization and homeless resources and the state of affordable housing in Kentucky's two largest cities. Before we embark on a new year, we wanted to revisit some episodes from last year, starting with Patrick Bowen, who we spoke with all the way back in January. Affordable housing, I
4: guess it's, you know, Just generally, it's up to the community to decide what they might define that as. But broadly speaking, affordable housing uh, is any housing that uh, meets the needs of lower income households. And depending on the financing that might be behind the project, um, it might mean those that make up to 50% of area median income, which ties to government subsidized programs, or it might go up to 80% of median income, which is low income tax credit programs. Um, I will say this there are some communities that still consider affordable housing, those that make over 80% of median income might go up to 120%. Now, the nomenclature on that kind of uh, varies from community to community, but a lot of folks will call that affordable workforce housing. So I know there are communities that, again, are trying to find that almost missing middle um, because, again, the tax credit program is out there to accommodate those that make up to 80. Government subsidized meets the needs of those or at least tries to meet the needs of those that make 50% or up to 50% of median. So there's that segment out there that I think a lot of communities are starting to look at, and I think it's at 81 to about 120 percent of median, and that might be affordable workforce housing. So that's the world that we're in, and that's what our company. Even though our company does focus on a lot of different types of housing, um, we are experts in affordable, and that would be my general definition of what uh, what we consider affordable housing. I mean, just nationally, I was looking up numbers uh, last week. And uh, residential uh, building permit activity in the United States, I think in September, was its lowest point in the past year. And so you are seeing the impact of uh, interest rates uh, specifically tying to uh, residential development. But meanwhile, you're correct. I mean, home prices are still going up. Now, they're not at the level they were. I think nationally, uh, home prices were up about 7 percent in September uh, over the preceding September. but back in the spring, uh, it was, you know, 14, 15, 16%. So it's slowing down. The rate of increase is slowing down in terms of home prices, but it's still positive. And the same thing for rentals. You know, part of this, obviously, this, this uh, podcast is to talk about rental housing. And the same thing is happening where it, nationally you saw rental increases uh, around 13 to about 17% in the spring, uh, early summer. Now we're down to about 8% nationally still increasing still outpacing uh, many household incomes so the challenge is still there for uh, particularly lower income households to be able to afford whether it's to buy or to to rent uh, the challenges are still there but it'll be interesting to see really in the next few months um, you know do they continue to raise interest rates what happens with inflation what happens with development costs I think those are the wild cards that everybody's kind of waiting to see where where we go one of the things we're finding that's uh, been a, a um, Probably a unique post COVID phenomenon has been the inability of voucher holders to use those vouchers. Now, Brent can probably speak to specific to Bowling Green, but I can tell you in a lot of communities that we uh, do these broader housing needs assessments, it is not uncommon for you know, hundreds or thousands in some cases of these vouchers to get issued and have as much as 20 to maybe even up to 40% of those vouchers, voucher holders cannot use their vouchers. There's a lot of things that go into that. One is a property owner does not have to accept a voucher. There's a whole process and a program that you'd have to go through as a property owner. And so some properties uh, management or ownership does not want to deal with that. And so I have a voucher, but I can't use it at this particular property. But the other thing is happening, and it's really been, it ties back to what Brent was talking about, rent increases, and I was uh, commenting about is that rents are so high now in some markets that they exceed the payment standard. So Brent's on the right track in in the sense that, you know, maybe a tactic for a community, and I don't know the process of of raising the payment standard. My understanding is it's a difficult process, but I could be wrong. But nonetheless, you know, right now the incentive for a a property owner to accept a voucher is not there. Because as a property owner, if you're going to rent an apartment or a house, I know that I can make more. On the private sector market and get somebody to pay a $1,500 rent for a two-bedroom, than I could for what the payment standard and the tenant rent contribution is going to pay. So guess what? I'm not taking a voucher. I can make more money elsewhere. And so that's happening everywhere. The end result is you got voucher holders. A good program, and that's federal money that could be coming into communities because the federal government's going to you know pay that portion of the tenant rent. that's not coming in because people cannot use vouchers. So that's a major uh, hurdle for the United States and, and all across Kentucky, right? Affordability is at the top of the charts that everybody talks about. One that people don't really talk about a lot, but I think they all know it out there, and that's availability of housing. There's just nothing available. And yes, the problem is more pronounced for lower income households. When we survey markets, not just in Kentucky, but anywhere in the United States, it's almost a universal truth that any subsidized project is usually full or 99.8% 99.8% occupied. But even the, the tax credit product, um, in most cases, it's really rare for us to survey a, a, a whole housing stock of tax credit product in a, in a community and come back with an occupancy level of less than 98%. And in many of those cases, uh, they're full.
5: In September, we had a conversation with Christy McCravey, executive director of the Louisville Affordable Housing Trust Fund, and Rick McQuady, affordable housing manager for the city of Lexington to discuss the state of affordable housing in those two cities.
3: Here in Louisville, in back in 2018, we did a housing needs assessment. um, A firm out of Pittsburgh did a very detailed study to determine that we had a shortage of more than 31,000 units for households with incomes less than 30% AMI. So if you think about 30% AMI um, and in 2023 terms, that is somebody, if it's a single family household, they make less than 18,850. And for a household of four, which is kind of our banner, (laughs) Mm -hmm. we look at that household of four number, that is an income of less than $30,000. So if you can imagine trying to make everything work for four people with a gross income of $30,000, that's where the need lies. So we have an abundance of people that are what we call overburdened, cost burdened, meaning they pay more than 50% of their gross income for housing. And we're trying to right size those numbers and we are at the five year mark for our housing needs assessment. So we're really at the point now where we're seeking to uh, update those numbers. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see what we learn. (laughs) Yeah, and Lexan
2: is much the same. Uh, We have a tremendous need and we haven't done a housing needs assessment since 2014. Actually, the housing needs assessment is what spurred the uh, Urban County Council to create the affordable housing fund because it identified 6,000 households who uh, were what's called, like what Christy said, rent burdened or overburdened, uh, paying more than 50% of their income for household expenses, rent, or in the case of a mortgage, your mortgage payment, which includes your uh, insurance and taxes as well. And the rent includes your rent plus your utilities. Mm -hmm. Uh, We haven't had a study since then. However, we have just commissioned a new one. Uh, We have an RFP out at this point in time to uh, select a firm to conduct an updated study. Additionally, uh, most of what we most of the projects that we fund, the larger ones anyway, have a market study and the market studies just show a tremendous need. I mean, it's just market study after market study uh, just states, uh, just verifies my thought that there just is a, a huge need for housing. And it's for all spectrums, whether it be those at 60, those at 40, those at 30 uh, percent, just a significant need out there. And. Um, you know, we have over 800 units that are coming online here in the next six months. And I just saw a market study for that will serve a similar population, really maybe 15 miles away from the most of the ones we have now. And the need is still tremendous. So, um, And the good thing is that everybody, all, all the political figures, if you will, the mayor, the council, everybody recognizes the fact there's a tremendous need for more affordable housing in Fayette County,
3: Kentucky. Our priority is to do home ownership in the urban core, simply because inside of what we call I-264, the Watterson Expressway, we have a lot of rental. It's a lot of lower income rental. So we would like to bring in some home ownership there to stabilize neighborhoods. And outside the urban core, have more uh, home, uh, rental outside of 264. However, it doesn't always work that way because of some of the HOPE-6 projects, the Choice neighborhood choice projects that came along. Um, in recent years, you had a lot of displacement of uh, numerous amounts of uh, people who were displaced because of tearing down some of the housing projects. So there was replacement units that have been built. They've been built, built throughout the county um, there are significant uh, numbers of apartments in the West, but also in the, in the Southwest and in South Central. The hardest neighborhood to break into and wouldn't be any surprise to anybody if you know Louisville is the East because of cost and because of good old NIMBYism, you know, not in my backyard. So when that happens, it just increases the housing costs for developers many of our developers can't afford it. So, you know, there's a lot of work to be done on that front. Uh, There's a lot of work to be done with zoning and ways in order to help to create affordable housing throughout the entire county and not to concentrate it because it is not our goal to concentrate housing.
2: Uh, We're the same way, Christy, uh, in in Lexington. Uh, Geographic distribution is very important to us that um if you will th- that we don't concentrate all the affordable housing in in one area of lexington and i feel very good so far and, and sort of like in louisville it's just uh, it's just worked out that way mm-hmm. which is really good you know my board if, if they felt that there were too many developments going in in one certain area uh we would stop that we just wouldn't fund a, pr- a project mm-hmm. there. but uh it's really worked out well for us and um you know, we haven't we haven't run into as much NIMBYism as I thought we would. Oh. Uh, you run into a little you're bit laughing. every now and then. But, you know, we have a requirement. I'm sure Christy does, too. A developers got to work with these neighborhoods, work with the communities. And obviously, some are harder to work with than others. But just try and let them know these. You know, there's always a misconception out there about affordable housing as to who you're serving. But if you you explain to them who you're serving, what these units are going to be, the quality nature in which they're going to be built, at least you get a few steps ahead uh, and you uh, eliminate, you don't eliminate it, but you uh, reduce some of the complaining.
5: Many of the conversations we had in 2023 touched on the natural disasters we had in Kentucky, the tornadoes in 2021 and the flooding in 2022. We spoke with Jim King, president of FAHI, back in February, and he had this to say about how those events are shaping affordable housing.
6: I do think whether this is central to the conversation that you want to have or not, I, I, do, think, I do think that the issues around climate change would definitely have seen a lot more happening in our region that have affected people. Um, the tornado in western Kentucky, which was just before that. There was the 2021 flooding in breathic county um we've had two or three tornadoes in alabama in our service area and although all in the same span and so um i guess two things one it feels to me like natural disasters have become a regular course for us um sadly um so i think um uh and and uh, at the same time, I, I, I would I would just express that some of what we've seen in Eastern Kentucky in this 2022 flood is among the most devastating that I've seen in my 30 plus years of, of this work. Um, so, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a big deal, I think. I think collectively, I would say this is going to shape our work and definitely the work in Kentucky is, is completely influenced by, by what's happened. Um, it, you mentioned, um, some of our members, we had, we had 11 of our members who were affected by the flood. Um, and, um some not as significant, of course, as others, where we have four counties that were federally declared disaster area, and, and, and it, that's a big deal. You know, it was, it was a big, it's a big issue. We've got, I believe, five members who are pretty active on a daily basis on either uh, flood recovery or thinking about the permanent rebuild um, on, on the housing side. Um, and, and I think there's a lot of work to do there. Um, so, so yes, it does shape us. And I think we're leaning pretty heavily on how do we support one another? Um, uh, it's been, it's, I was in, I was in Heinemann yesterday, um, and, um, just, just the stories that you hear, uh, at a community level about how people are coming together, uh, I'm also seeing with my own members who so even members who were not affected by this flood are donating um, money, resources, um, offering their assistance in any way they can. And so I think there's um, kind of out of out of the midst of all of this uh, this catastrophe, there is a uh, there is a real spirit of caring that I'm seeing in a lot of places and in a, in a lot of ways that um, I think is also extended to our members. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a super encouraging thing to, to bear witness to. We have not built for a very long time um, uh, a housing stock at the pace at which people really do need it. Um, and that's across the whole housing spectrum, uh, market rate, um, multi-family single-family uh, f- affordable any of it um, there's just not enough units out there right and so you see that you see an incredible amount of pressure in in, in, in every market in in the, in the country and so where where the economy is really hot in some places uh, housing has gone um, uh, up in cost past what an average consumer can really afford. Um, and it's you, you know, ridiculous, uh, ridiculous rent in some markets. Um, I think I think in in Kentucky, then we do have some of that in in the in the sort of northern Kentucky, Louisville, Lexington market um, and, and sort of like the, those communities in, in and around that. Um, and then as you look at places like um, some of the communities in Eastern Kentucky that have been disinvested for a very, very long time, um, that um, um, not only have you not seen um, seen housing being built at the rate that we need, um, but now that now that there's, there's, a, there's some lack of it, you, you either have no housing being put on the ground, um, leaving people with, I think, some really poor choices um, um, or too little. Let's say it's not that nothing's being done, right? It's just too little housing is being put on the ground. Um, and, um, and there's just a ton of risk for anybody, you know, in the development space. It is not um, it, it, in, in those vulnerable markets, whether they're too hot or they're too cold, And I think that the, the, some of some of your Eastern Kentucky counties have a, have a market that feels pretty cold. Um, I know, um, I know somebody who called me looking for, um, market rate housing in Pike County and said he and his wife needed to move there and there just wasn't, you know, there wasn't enough being built. There was not much available. Um, so I think, um, um, I, I think there's a ton of work to do, but I don't know that it's all on, and certainly not all on Kentucky. Although we have, we have to do, we you know, we have to do better with the resources we have. Um, we don't have a strong national housing policy in this country, and um, and because of that, we expect the market to take care of these issues with with subsidy programs that encourage that. That's what the tax credit program does. But it doesn't actually deliver with a consistency or a volume that matches the need. Um, I, you know, we're we're lucky to have to have it. We could sure use more, and it would be great if it was better so that it addressed, I think, these wide variants in needs um, um, better
5: than than it does now. One of the first conversations we had in 2023 was with Brent Childers the Director of Neighborhood and Community Services in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Bowling Green lost some of its housing stock in the tornadoes of 2021, but as Brent tells us, they were already struggling to keep up with the demand.
0: Being really in charge of the recovery uh, and also the planning uh, of the recovery, I'm I'm able to see really a a good 50,000-foot view. So our department did damage assessments, so we knew what was damaged, what was lost. Uh, so I've got a whole database of all the properties that were impacted, and was able to siphon that down. And really, we lost about 475 units. We we net units, uh, so that would be not houses, total units. So if it was an eightplex, that's eight units because that's eight families that have to go somewhere that, that are removed from the marketplace uh and so what we also saw was 65% of those were of those impacted units were rental properties uh our hardest impact area our our kind of ground zero if you will uh was in this uh, one neighborhood and it had uh a whole line of single family rental properties uh there were two owners that owned 17 properties uh in this stretch 13 of them were completely lost of those of these two families uh, and then the next phase of that development was really a multifamily development area, and it was all eight plexus. And so it just came right through. And I won't say that these were our uh, affordable housing. These weren't our lowest rents. Uh, most of this area was really five to six years old, but it was targeted and built to that workforce housing group, uh, you know, the much more moderate rent, moderate-priced housing uh, high-density uh, type of, of development, but it created an opportunity for for those families. Uh, and that's where we lost 41% of our housing units within that one area. Uh, so all told, 475, we had another 500 damage, uh, but they weren't moderate or severe, where we believe um, that people could uh, stay in those uh, past point So 475 is where people couldn't live there until they were fixed. Now what we've seen, uh, and a couple of things we did, we have a lot of construction always going on. Uh, so we tend to build about a thousand units a year in this community between the city and the county, because uh, we grow at about 2,500 people a year. So we need to build about a thousand units a year. Um, and so that, so you're looking at, we now have to fix uh, somewhere around, one and a half years worth of housing stock, new housing stock, and on top of building this new housing stock. Uh so that slowed us down because there's just not enough contractors, there's not enough plumbers, there's not enough electricians, the wood the material supply. Uh but we also saw those four hundred and seventy five families gobbled up any vacancy that was out there. And there wasn't four hundred and seventy five units to be gobbled up. Uh the there wasn't that much vacancy in the market. And that's where the temporary housing comes in. Uh, So they brought in some of the temporary trailers and things like that. Now, we were fortunate. We all ended up with about 30 trailers. uh, But we also worked very hard. Uh, We identified construction, uh, new multifamily projects that were close to completion. We identified those through a building office and then just started calling those builders, those developers, okay, how close are you? What do we need to do to get you CEOs so you can move people in. OK, you haven't paved the parking lot. That's fine. You can do that next week. But we need these units, you know, get your toilets in there, get your smoke detector. Let's make them livable. And we were able to bring, I don't know, probably 80 online in just a couple of weeks. Just And then they were able to start poof. I mean, then they went from, uh, you know, 90 percent complete to 100 percent occupied in just a very short amount of time. But that what we were really trying to do was increase our supply, because we had lost a a portion of our supply. Now, where Bowling Green Warren County, um, I think, different from some of the other communities in West Kentucky about this, 475 units lost. We have in Bowling Green, we have probably 30,000 housing units, so it's a small percentage overall of our housing market. You go to the Mayfield, to the Dawson Springs, they lost a much higher percentage of their overall housing market. There there was nowhere else for people to go. There was no other market to support that. And so the challenges that they have are, are much different than the challenges we have. Um, so I track our permitting. So far, we've permitted the reconstruction or rebuild or repair uh, of about 340 residential units. Uh, and not that permits are the best because I promise you after, after a disaster, a building permit is not people's first focus. Uh, so we've tried to catch as many as we can, but we know, uh, through using some aerial imagery, uh, post tornado and going back and doing on the ground surveys, uh, look driving through neighborhoods that this house was damaged. This house is now repaired and there was no permit, uh, issued on that property. So it's not the best measure it's just the best we have to work with um, and so it impacted we saw rents really increase a couple hundred dollars instantly I'll, I'll give you a, uh, we lost we had 13 vouchers impacted because uh, that was one of the, one of the things that I had our housing division do is okay go through your list see who's in the impacted areas see how many vouchers we had impacted uh, and you know start verifying we ended up with 13 so one of the families uh, older couple fixed income, they, uh, uh, the unit was damaged, uh, had a good landlord, had to move out, moved in with some family for a short term. Move, you know, probably six, eight months later, they're back in that unit, uh, and rent went up $150 on the same, pretty much the same unit, uh, because of the cost to the owner for rebuilding. So we just saw overall our rental prices increase, uh, very quickly just because of the disaster. One of the things I've learned. Uh, about a disaster, it exposes the vulnerabilities in your community. Uh, One of our big vulnerabilities was affordable housing, and it just exposed it right out there to everybody. Uh, And so that's where now I'm in the role of planning how do we utilize some of the other federal funding to address this as much as we can. In July
5: 2023, to mark the one-year anniversary of the flooding in eastern Kentucky, we traveled to Hazard to speak with Scott McReynolds, Executive Director of Housing Development Alliance, and Seth Long, Executive Director of Homes Inc. Since the night of the flood, both organizations have devoted their efforts almost entirely to the recovery.
7: So um,
5: I think a couple that popped to my mind is,
7: you know, floods, I think, are especially nefarious. Like we, like I said, we've dealt with ice storms and wind storms. You know, there's not a wind storm plane. There's not an ice storm plane. And so, when you're dealing with that sort of an event, you can really focus on getting people back in their house. The problem with a flood, and we learned this because we dealt with the 21 flood in Breathitt County, and then a lot those same people and a lot of the people we had helped and the other agencies had helped got flooded again. So there is a there is when someone's in the flood in a flood-prone area because the floodplain maps are inadequate. When someone's in a flood-prone area, you really have to ask yourself what's the best long-term solution. And there's often a real tension between um, what's the quickest way to help someone and what's the best long-term. And so we're still struggling with that. Seth said about, you know, one of the important things you decide is what you're not going to do. And so... You know, we made the very hard decision that if someone's likely to have significant water in their house again, we want to help relocate them, not put them back in harm's way. Um, and so, we're still struggling with that and, and what that means, and the inadequate floodplain maps. And then, um, particularly for us in Breathitt County, and I think it's true in Letcher, um, if you're relocating someone, you need land mm-hmm. that doesn't flood, and and that's a real struggle. Um, we we found some in Perry. We found some in Not. Um, the governor has found the high ground communities. I think there's one in Perry and one in Not. Um, but we don't have that in it. I'm not sure of the
8: status of Letcher. It's in discussion. Yeah. You, you know, um, I think I think uh, some of the uh, challenges that I see coming down the pike um, are in in Central Appalachia, um, low income, poor folk they own their house. A high percentage of people own their homes. Maybe they ain't much, but they own them, and it's a roof over their their heads, over their families. Um, A lot of those homes aren't there anymore. They got taken away. So what do you do with a family that is super low income, had a place to live, but even if you build them a new home, they're not gonna be able to afford the insurance and taxes of that new home. That's a big problem. That's a problem. Those are the situations that are hard to know. And and there's not easy answers to it, but we see it a lot and we don't know how to help um, those families. I think another challenge ahead is hoping that our communities have a high bar when it comes to considering uh, people who, who have been resourceful with the help of volunteers, maybe some a load of sheetrock and some insulation and floor coverings, have got back into their home, but it's not quite what it was before the flood. Um, but they didn't permit the projects, <laughs> they didn't mitigate the flood risk, and they're still there. Will when we have a high bar and give these people opportunity to do something different with this federal investment mm that's coming in, giving them an opportunity to move to higher ground and not consider them whole, complete, or repaired. Um, I worry about that. Uh, We we need to have a high bar, and um, sometimes I don't know if we do or not, but the next time a flood comes for that family, uh, there won't even be FEMA assistance because they didn't permit the project, because they didn't mitigate the risk, because they didn't Purchase the flood insurance that they couldn't afford anyway. Um, we These families, I, I hope that we can give them an opportunity to do something vastly different. And a lot of those families don't even, haven't even seen a vision cast before them that there might be something different mm. that they can do. And that's one of the things that, you know, that challenge before us is casting a vision. Hey, we can do something vastly different, but... It's hard to cast a vision when those dollars aren't certain and on the ground yet. So there's a real tension with how to do that. So those are some of the things that keep me up at night.
7: In addition to people who have repaired houses, we've seen people who have bought garden sheds or tool sheds and converted them to tiny homes that are right back in the floodplain. And it's not because they want to live in a tiny home in the floodplain. It's because they're
8: resourceful. They didn't want to be homeless.
7: And, And they, you know... They, they were able to do it. Uh, we've seen people buy new and used trailers and, and set them, again, back up in the floodplain because that's what they could afford. And so we need, as we go through the recovery process, to, to view those as interim solutions or partial solutions and not as have said, oh, this person's got a used trailer, they're housed, and we're going to um, go on, go on and, yeah. and ignore them.
5: Um on that trip to Hazard, we also spoke with two homeowners directly affected by the flooding, including Sherry Mullins, who you'll hear in this clip.
1: Well, the evening of the flood, it was just a pretty sun, sunny evening, and uh, my nieces had come down and their children, and they were just playing you know, out in the yard. And I always watched the weather, but for some reason, I did not watch it that evening. Had I known they were giving seven inches of rain, you know, I certainly would have not have gone to bed. But uh, I, I did go to bed, and I was asleep, and um, my aunt that lived down below me, she called, and she said that the creek was up, which now she is worried about And uh, she had a chicken coop, you know, and she was worried about her chickens. So I got up, and um, I, I always checked the radar, and I remember seeing two red spots, and I told her, I said, it's on the way out. And, but little did I know those spots were going to come together and stay. So um I got up and I did put my clothes on and it, it was just a few yards, you know, to her house. And when I went outside it was like it smelled like a tropical rainforest or something like that where, you know, I've been to, you know, like in a, a Disney. You could smell it. And it was raining so hard that I barely could see how to walk and the thunder was jarring the ground and and the lightning. And um when I walked down through there I looked at the creek and it was up, but I had seen it way bigger. Yeah. So I got to there to her house and we were just sitting there and of course she wanted to go out and I kept telling her no. So um then my niece but, but when I was walking out the door uh the uh, National Weather Service sirens, you know, the on the phones started going off, but by that time we were already washed away. And when when we got down there my niece texted and we got a little family chat and she said it's under my house and I'm thinking it, it can't be that is too high so I got up and I walked over to the front door of my aunt's house and I opened the door and when I did the floodwaters was ready to come in the stoop of the house and it was like 20 already 20 feet out in front in the driveway and that's when I looked up at my house and my house looked like the North Fork River on both sides of it. I did not wake my husband and my son up because I had done that so many times, you know, just to go comfort her. So we got out and I helped her. We waited out and we got to the to the road and I never left right in front of my house um, because my husband and son were trapped in, in there. Yeah, they were in there. And then when the power went off, I could see them in that house and they had flashlights. And the water was literally over top of the back of that house Jeez. where they were walking back and forth through there. So i just be honest with you, I just stood there and I prayed. And the water was about to wash me down in the main road. And I stayed there and, and I watched the neighbor's houses float by. Oh. I saw it, you know, just like screeching, just like almost tearing the roof off of my house. And in the lightning, I could it, the water was you know swift and big here, and the road and stuff. But the mainstream of that water, uh, I guessed it to be 30 feet high. And then later, when the uh, hydrologists came in, they said the main street the mainstream of that water probably was 30 to 35 feet high. And uh, it, it's just it was like ocean waves it was it would just like surge and then it would come back and and just you know keep on. The, uh, and the last thing that i that i saw coming was uh, my niece her children's playhouse when they were small i saw it coming and it was pushing like a four foot wall of water in front of it and i thought well this this is going to be the end this is going to take everything we've got but somehow that i was in the road and that a little playhouse, it was made out of rough lumber. It came literally and landed right. I could touch it right at my hand, like that, right there. And when it did, that wall of water passed. And when it did, I I could see some grass there in our yard. And I kind of knew how deep it was. And my niece's husband went in, you know, waded in and got my husband and son out of there. Gee. And by then, you know, I mean, I hope they, of course they were terrified, you know, all that, but they didn't see what was behind them. But um, after that, we got out, and everybody went to my mom and dad's old house, and we were on the porch just sitting there, and that's when we found out that um, my niece and her her, uh, partner and her son had actually were in that water. I heard a voice. One of them was, help, help. One of them was like a low groan, and the other one was a high-pitched scream, but I did not know it was them until, you know, and still didn't know until later, until later. and they came you know, my, him and my nephew came up the road, and I just like lost all kind of all sense of reasoning, I just didn't could not put that together, like why would they be down there and then that's when we all got together and went to the porch, is when we realized that she, you know, no. she was missing, yeah So we just sat there until daylight and just uh, wait to see what was going to happen next.
5: Thanks for joining us for this final episode of 2023 when we look back at some of the conversations we had last year. We hope you will join us in 2024 when we bring you some new conversations about affordable housing in Kentucky.
1: If you'd like to find out more information about Kentucky Housing Corporation, please feel free to visit www.kyhousing.org. That's www.kyhousing.org. If you like more information about this podcast and blog, you can also visit www.bringingithomeky.com. That's www.bringingithomeky.com. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can also email us at communications at kyhousing.org. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you bring it home with us again.